All right, everyone, welcome to episode 55 of Handy Schlepp. I am your host, the Reverend Jordan Schrader. And today we're going to do something a little different again. We're going to have a discussion on writing and storytelling, particularly what it means to go through Christian storytelling. And there's so much layers to talk about that. And to do so, we're going to be talking with an old friend of mine. He goes by Ben Wolf. He's a multi-award winning author of books and children's books and nonfiction books. He's also a ghostwriter and speaker. He's written uh, about 20 books now, including Blood for Blood, The Crimson Flame, and The Ghost Mine. And I punch a, a lion in the eye for you. So he's done many great things, and I've known him for many, many years now when I was growing up. Uh, ben, welcome to Handy Slapped. How are you doing? Doing really well, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And we've known each other for a long time. How did we first meet again? We met at uh, Vineyard Community Church in Grafton, uh, Grafton, Wisconsin, which is a northern suburb of Milwaukee. Uh, and I was first, I was just attending the church and then they later, uh, we can say the word hired, although it was a little bit more informal than that. They hired me on as the youth pastor where I served for a couple of years doing that before transitioning full-time into writing and publishing type stuff. And so you were going to the same church as me. You were in the youth group, out of the youth group, helping with the youth group. It was a wide range of our interactions over, over the course of the years. And then we've Fortunately, we've been able to stay in touch all this time, too. Yeah, praise God for that. Amen. And uh, when I met you at youth group and I was growing up and helping out with everything, you were talking with me just a lot about um, when you were growing up as well, because we had very similar tastes and um, ideas of when to become writers. And uh, mm -hmm. I think over time, we talked about how when you were writing uh, books, growing up and you actually became an author how that influenced me and inspired me in my own drive to write movies and to make movies yeah. as a writer and film director and that, that just inspired me so much and um the way you talked to me about writing it seems like you had that desire and that flame from such an early age like you're talking to me about Oh, I believe you wrote, was it just a story or it was a full-on book at the age of 18, if I'm remembering correctly? Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, well, it did end up being a complete book. Um, my senior year in high school, when I was 17, um, I, I started an independent study to write a novel. And I thought, well, this is something that I've always wanted to do. And I have an open hour in my day. It, ended, it was first period every day uh, for the entire school year. Um, went in and hung out with my creative writing teacher because she had first hour free as well. So it was just me and her. And I was in one corner. She was at her desk working on stuff. And I was at uh, a separate little desk kind of in the opposite corner. And I was working on writing a book. I really had no idea what I was doing. I just knew, well, this is kind of a fun story in my head and I let's see how much of it I can get onto paper. I didn't end up finishing the book throughout the course of the year, um, but I did finish it a couple years later 
while I was in college. And so um, that was that was the first real book with big air quotes here. Uh, that was the first real book that I attempted to write. I did eventually finish it. It ended up being 167,000 words long, which is way too long for a first book for most genres anyway. Uh, but then thanks to my first writer's conference, which I went to in 2009, I learned how to reshape it and make it better. And I literally cut the book in half. So it ended up being 83,500 words, which is half of 167,000. And it was a much tighter paced, much cleaner, much more professionally done product. But even so, I still haven't published it because for a lot of us authors, your first book is always kind of going to be a heaping pile of garbage and that it, I am not an exception to that. It's just not very good. So that one is going to stay in a drawer and I probably won't ever publish it. Uh, but it was a good learning experience for me. So that that's the backstory behind the uh, writing a book at, at 17 or 18 years old. What like uh like why do you, why did you want to write at such a young age? I think you could probably relate to this, Jordan. Um, mm -hmm. I have story ideas in my head, and they won't leave me alone. And that's yeah. been going on for <laughs> since since middle school. Honestly, the my my mm -hmm. awakening, if you want to call it that, to writing was to doing the writing myself. I was always a big reader, but. My awakening to doing the writing came in middle school when I saw the movie Congo. And this is all over a lot of my my bios uh, in my books and on my website and stuff. But I saw the movie Congo and it was so bad that I decided to write a parody of it <laughs> featuring killer kangaroos instead of gorillas and set in Australia instead of Africa. And so uh, naturally being in seventh grade, I named it Congo Rule because that's what you do when you're a seventh grader and you're spoof of something so that that's really what kind of ignited something within me to actually sit down and do the writing and so the outflow from that um was eventually the independent study that i did my senior year because i wanted mm -hmm. to something more serious because obviously that was goofy and fun and rambling and didn't really didn't always make a lot of sense but you know it was seventh eighth grade humor as opposed to the the very sophisticated uh, humor of a high school senior, so mm -hmm. uh, that's that's sort of the genesis of my my writing inspiration. And from then on, like the, I can't turn the spigot off. It just keeps. I keep getting ideas. I keep having to decide. Well, am I going to write this one or am I going to write that one? Am I going to ignore this idea forever, or what? So it's for me, it's just a constant flow of ideas and. Uh, it's a blessing it's a blessing and a little bit of a curse but it's more of a blessing for sure yeah, yeah right on man uh that's hilarious uh did you ever read the book version of congo i did not no i the movie turned me off so much that that i was just like well no thanks but i did read several other michael Crichton books i read timeline i read uh jurassic park and lost world uh, there might have been a couple other ones scattered throughout as well. I really liked Michael Crichton as an author. Awesome. I read when I was in middle school, I think I started reading Jurassic Park as well, but that was so long ago. Yeah. Um, but like, we, so you talk about Michael Crichton, you talk about all these different genres. You like, you and I have had conversations. Um, we both love video games. We both love sci-fi. We both love horror fantasy 
You have a very eclectic taste. And then at the same time, um, you have a big, um, uh, you have a noticeable, I should say, emphasis on universal, specifically Christian themes in some of your writing. And uh, why Christian writing, I should say, or is that the wrong terminology to say that I'm a Christian author to, when you tell people or what's a better way to say that? This is a this is a really interesting discussion because and it's one that I've been involved in on various levels throughout the years because that it's it's a solid question. What is a Christian author? Is it merely an author who is a Christian who writes, or is mm -hmm. it specifically a, an author who writes Christian books or some mm -hmm. hybrid of the two? Or is there any gray area in between? And so for me, when when I'm talking to people, because my I find my identity in Christ, I am a Christian first and foremost, a, a little Christ, a follower of Christ in the truest and traditional sense of the word, not in the the uh, American capitalist version of the word, uh, the over uh, over industrialized version of the word. And so labeling myself as a Christian, that's sort of just who I am as a person. An author, being an author is an outflow of the gifts that I have been given and the gifts, perhaps even more importantly, that I have cultivated, uh, a la the parable of the talents. Uh, and so to call myself a Christian author, I think the understanding of putting those two words right next to each other would imply that I write specifically Christian books, but that's not mm -hmm. really the case. I have two books looking back at my bookshelf, I think I have two books that are more explicitly Christian and the rest of them, like you said, uh, entertain some Christian themes, themes that are universal in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, I don't identify as a Christian author because I think the the moniker doesn't fit. A lot of what I write right. is, yeah, it's, you know, mm -hmm. especially with the sci-fi horror, you, you mentioned to me that you're reading through the ghost mine right now. doesn't really mm -hmm. feel like a Christian book, does it? And that's no. because it's um, with that said, I did manage to to sneak some Bible verses in there because that's a part of who I am. And so the, mm -hmm. it's an outflow of who I am as a person that's natural in anything that that we do. That's creative. Whatever we recreate, excuse me, whatever we create does reflect who we are as people. And so on that level, I am a Christian author, but the label, the way it's used publicly doesn't apply to me based on the definition that the world would put on that terminology. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. And like when I was growing up for me, like you and I grew up, albeit at different levels, um, during the 90s and early 2000s. And you see a really interesting dynamic shift there in not just uh, Christian writing, but writers who are just so happen to be Christian or authors or artists becoming more mainstream or embedded into the pop culture. Especially in the 90s, we see in music, um, you see got like a John Cooper with a skillet or um, for children, you see Veggie Tales. For adults, yeah. you see the Left Behind books, how all three of those blew up in the pop culture 
Why do you think things like that at that time, if that's relevant, the time that is, why did like things like that become so big and known in pop culture collective um, consciousness? I think there's probably a lot of reasons for it. And I think some of the reasons are specific to each of those three scenarios that you presented. There wasn't, and let's take VeggieTales as an example. That's a really, a really poignant example of what you're talking about. There mm-hmm. wasn't really, from what I remember, a lot of high-end Christian children's entertainment. Sure, there were some, the occasional cartoons. I, I will say Adventures in Odyssey was pretty solid. Yes. Um, so oh, yeah. <laughs> to Adventures in Odyssey because they, they've been at it for a long time and they do good work. But aside from them, there wasn't anything that was really grabbing kids our age when we were that age uh, and, and teaching them lessons in a fun, entertaining and humorous way. Mm-hmm. I, I was very blessed in children's church growing up. I had a series of really, really fantastic children's pastors. Really, like I don't think I could have ended up with a better slate of children's pastors. These were folks who loved Jesus, loved the kids that they were uh, teaching about Jesus, and they loved their mm-hmm. jobs too. And they were all incredibly talented, and and really put on great. It was it was like a show almost every week and almost every weekend at church. These children's pastors would really do a fantastic job of bringing the stories to life and interested in and in creative ways. And it went beyond just, oh, we're going to do a puppet show or, oh, we're going to do a skit. No, they like poured their heart and souls into these things. And I know that because later on in my life, I got to help write and act in some of the things that we would do on Sunday mornings. And I got to help out with that. So all that to circle back to VeggieTales, <clears throat> the, the level, the production value of VeggieTales, and obviously what got better as it went on, we hadn't seen anything aside from Adventures in Odyssey with the production value of VeggieTales until VeggieTales came along. It was a unique and weird idea. Like we're going to learn about the kingdom of God from vegetables. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll go with it. And also in that case, I do think the fact that they were computer generated instead of animated like Adventures in Odyssey, I do think that that played into their favor because at the time that technology was relatively new we had Toy Story and then VeggieTales came out not long after that. Either it might have even come out before. I don't know the exact timeline, but I think it was 1993 they dropped the first video. There you go. And I don't remember what year the first Toy Story came out. VeggieTales may have preceded it, but either way, it was new and interesting technology to create that artwork. And so that also, I think, was captivating to kids because it's like, oh, we haven't seen this before. And then for whatever reason, it caught on. So I think I think with any, and Left Behind is another good example of this, and then Skillet is another good example. With any type of media that is Christian in nature, it has to be really, 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 really good in order to catch on. It has to be well done of the highest quality. And like whatever art form it is, it has to be like legit. You can't mm-hmm. fake it. And unfortunately, and this is a whole another rabbit trail that maybe we don't want to go down, but unfortunately, a lot of Christian creatives have the the erroneous idea that, well, if I just create something, then God will take care of the rest and we can 
you know, he'll market it and he'll, he'll make it sell. Like I have faith that God will make it sell. And that's wrong. You have to do great work. Otherwise the very human people of this world will not respect what you've done. And then they won't buy it. They won't support you. So you have to have really excellent quality. God's not going to do that work for you because that's, you're selling yourself short. You're selling the message short. You're not learning how to do any sort of marketing. You're not doing any of the work to put your work out there. It's I, I have got an entire blog post about it. I don't want to suck up too much of our time here lambasting all of these Christian creatives who don't do the work. So we'll, if you want to read more about it, go to my website, benwolf.com and look up the blog. You'll, you'll get my ramblings there. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's that's really interesting to me because, like, what was it that broke the Christian audience barrier for those type of authors and artists? Like, what? How was it able to captivate so many beyond the Christians and make such an impact in a general audience? For Left Behind, Left Behind is probably the one that I know the most about being in publishing and with that being a book series mm -hmm. and having having had conversations with Jerry B. Jenkins, who's one of the two co-authors of the series. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding of how that played out was that it was kind of the perfect storm of everything hitting the right way. And most certainly... Uh, Left Behind started out hitting it big with Christian audiences, and then it did something that rarely happens with Christian books. It went above and beyond and reached a secular, a general market audience, too. And I think the reason that it reached a general market audience, there were a lot of them, of course, but I think the political climate of the day, especially with a lot of the troubles in the Middle East, because uh, I believe the first book launched either in the very early 2000s or the late 90s israel and palestine were really butting heads for a long time there and for most of that time we were getting constant news reports about it and then very very shortly after george bush took office we had 9 11 which was horrible of course and then we very quickly got into the war with iraq so we had the persian gulf war um and then we waited a few years and then left behind comes out somewhere in the middle and then 9-11 happens and it just kept growing and growing and growing so i think being sandwiched between two wars with iraq helped that that and the content of the books with it being end times with a lot of it taking place in the middle middle east i think that those were a couple of factors that played into it and then i also think tim lahaye had a pretty big following and Jerry B. Jenkins had a decent sized following as well at the time before they actually started launching the books. And then when the first book took off, it's, it's, I mean, that's just, you get carte blanche from your publisher at that point to just keep going. So I think it was really the, the combination of a lot of different advantages and timing of things that hit at the right time for the series, uh, politically, socially, economically, yeah. It all it all just convalesced into the the right mix of stuff for it to yeah. do really well. Yeah, I see. Like I see that in a cycle as well. Because in the seventies, there's also kind of a rise in 
um, end times content. Like uh, when I was a little kid, I remember watching on like TBN and stuff, like a lot of end times movies, rapture movies, and all that stuff from the 70s. And then we see another resurgence in the late 90s. And uh, it's just amazing how all those factors can be reflected in um, film or media or books and how it all like is so reflective of each other. I always thought that was interesting. I think that's really true what you say about like the political climate and um, it really was the perfect storm. It was weird at the time. Everything yeah. was weird. <laughs> and uh, everything was, yeah. So, like, what changed since then? By the way, I'm, I'm going to do a timeout right here. Don't worry about the timer if you see it. Um, there's yeah, a timer was... on my end. Ignore that. It'll cut us off. We'll just start over. And then I'll, we'll just, I'll just put the edits together. Sure, that works. That's kind of what I thought you were going to do, but that's fine. So I'll try to, we'll try to end on it, you know, without getting cut off. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So right. uh, what was your, what was your question? So, so just uh, time myself. Three, two, one. All right. So everything was kind of weird at the time with how everything came together to boost yeah. these Christian um, content, this Christian content into the mainstream. You know, people were eating it up like candy, you know, because uh, they wanted that. They wanted that, mm-hmm. and uh, the content was so good at the time as well to bring the general market into it. And after that, it kind of changed. The, um, like the quality seemed to drop. Um, the uh, the relevance and the um, the demand for it. And the general market sense seemed to drop and it kind of went totally opposite and it became very negative. And um, what do you think changed? Because nowadays, um, 20 years later, we got um, the Pure Flix movies or the God's Not Dead movies. And 20 years ago, it would have been a different story. But today, while they're loved by Christian audiences for the most part, General audiences seem to um, popularize those in the sense of bashing it, giving it negative reviews, negative comments, calling it um, too preachy, etc. And uh, nowadays, I can kind of see what they're talking about how Christian media, books, film, whatever, has kind of gone the more preachy yeah. route and upfront. What do you think changed? I suppose is my question. I think a lot of things changed. I think that the overwhelming success of things like Left Behind, a lot of Frank Peretti's books did really well during that time frame too. Um, and then Jeanette Oak uh, was the sort of the softer side of things. She sold tons and tons of books. Debbie Macomber is another one uh, on the more ro- romance side of things. Um, because of the the overwhelming success of some of these authors during that time frame, I think that you know the pendulum slid real far in one direction, right? With the Christian authors are killing it, right? Or at least a select few are killing it. And then Ted Decker uh, was another one who was doing really well. 
since then, and you know this as much as I do, as much as any Christian of our age or older, uh, society has really changed. Mm -hmm. um, we have the pendulum on society has swung in a very different direction in terms of a lot of the ideologies of the day. They're not, they don't align with Christianity in certain ways very well. And, and it could be argued that they align with Christianity better in some ways, but that's not the content of the, this conversation. Mm -hmm. The fact is the ideologies have changed and certain ideologies have been adopted more more widespread in our culture and so with that a lot of the stuff that was cool or interesting or appropriate in the in the late 90s early 2000s just doesn't fly these days so you mentioned the preachiness the preachy aspect of some of the the media from back then especially the christian stuff you really even the christian readers don't want you to be preaching in their books these days the majority of them we the preachiness idea of it has been out the door and out the window since at least at least 2009 which is when i was really coming up and starting like even people were even talking about it then at my first writers conference oh we don't want anything preachy right so what do you mean by preachy or what do they mean by preachy i feel like that can go multiple ways you're right, it can. Um, one of the big hallmarks of having a preachy book is if you include an actual conversion scene. So a scene where a character accepts Christ into their heart and becomes a Christian and makes that profession of faith, that's considered to be very, very preachy. And that was one of the obstacles I had to deal with. I don't have a copy handy. When I was writing Blood for Blood, my mm -hmm. my what if the vampire got saved novel because it's like central to the story there is no story unless the vampire becomes a christian so having to deal with that and and trying to to sell that to a traditional publisher was pretty much a non-starter because they couldn't get past the fact that it was vampires which christians don't read apparently which is not true mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. and the fact that there was a conversion scene so that's one of them the other one is just if your characters are too good or too well behaved, or if they're all constantly telling other characters how to live their lives, and if and if the characters who are doing the telling are the good guys in the story, then then it's mm -hmm. then it comes across as preachy, as opposed to authentic and real and people with struggles who I know I know for me, I don't always get my Christian faith correct. I'm sure you're probably perfect in every single way. Sure. Uh, but me, I'm 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 a human, and and it doesn't uh, it doesn't work out for me that way. So that's what readers of all stripes, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, or anything in between, that's what they want to read about. They want to encounter characters who are realistic, rather than perfect archetypes of what a Christian should be. Mm -hmm. Like, are there certain? ways of getting around it or saying like are there certain words that make it preachy and non-preachy like okay in your book for example you have a character uh that accepts christ that's a a literal christian conversion but if you do it in a more symbolic or um 
metaphorical way or something like that, another literary, the trick of doing so, does that make a difference? It does make a difference, in my opinion. Um, one of the choices I made specifically in later revisions of Blood for Blood, the vampire novel, um, was to remove the character actually repeating the Lord's Prayer after after the uh, the preacher was praying. Because that's a very Christian thing. We, If you're a Christian, you've probably been to a number of services where at the end, the pastor says, if you want to accept Christ, all you have to do is pray the words that I'm praying and mean it. And so, and then you repeat it after the minister. And that's great. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. But in a book, for me, it was coming across as too preachy. For some of my beta readers, it was coming across as too, too just like in your face preachy. So what I did instead is uh, I, I used what's called narrative summary. And I had the, uh, basically the lines are something like, and then he led him in prayer and then boom. And and then the the vampire says, that's it. That's all I have to do. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. And then so you just, you get get the story moving again. You get the get the conflict back into it. You get the tension back into it. You, you get the story on its feet and get it moving. So whatever, anytime you have to stop and explain something, or if you're getting... If if you're having a preachy moment, you're you're essentially stopping the story and saying, "No, this is right, and what you're doing is wrong." Mm-hmm. Readers don't want that, and what they want is for the story to continue. So as long as you are moving the story along, I I think you're at less risk of ending up being preachy. Mm-hmm. So if this kind of comes to something I just think about all the time when I watch movies or. Um, if I'm writing a movie myself or just anything, like it could be any kind of thing now. Like, is there a stigma or I must say stigma, but um, is there a hold on? Is there like a stigma of you could say authors who use Christian um literary devices or just I will say Christian authors of are they more censored? I use that in quotes, of course. Sure, sure. I, I think I understand what you're asking. We can we can fire back and forth at each other for clarification as needed. But I think very much so in terms of the general market, the general market is less agreeable to books and stories that use some of those Christian plot devices, which are so convenient for us in storytelling uh, to resolve resolve the, the actual story that's being told. So for example, you mentioned earlier, God's Not Dead, the first movie, mm-hmm. they kill Kevin Sorbo off at the end. Spoiler alert, sorry. Um, <laughs> they, they kill off Kevin Sorbo's character and he is the atheist. But as he is dying in, in the result of being hit by a car or being in a car accident, there was a car involved somehow. I forget what it was. He as he's dying, think, yeah. Yeah, in the rain, no less. Uh, he realizes, he realizes, oh my gosh, I've been living my life wrong this whole time, and he accepts Christ, and then he dies. Um, that that got panned by Christians and non-Christians alike because it was cheap storytelling. It was it was okay. lousy. So something like that, where you you force 
mm-hmm. force the outcome that you want because it fits your ideology, that's poor storytelling. And I, I don't think it's so much that people were reacting to, oh, he became a Christian. I don't like Christians. I think it was more that people reacting to, really, that's how you're going to end this story? You got to kill the atheist to convince him to be a Christian? It it was the reaction to the poor storytelling more than it was to the ideology being preached. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the movie itself, apart from that, it was fine. It wasn't like an, an amazing movie for any other reason, really. Mm-hmm. And so the overall, the, the perception of the quality, it's, if, if they hadn't ended it that way, the movie probably would have been just fine. But because they ended it that way, that was the that was like the last thing that anyone remembers about that film because it happens right at the end. And so the lasting impression you got is, oh, so if I'm dying, I can just make a deathbed confession right. and still get it. Is that really even the message that we as Christians want to be sending? It's a mm-hmm. huge conversation, Jordan. I, I, I could bloviate for hours on this but suffice to say like to more directly answer your original question yes i do think there's censorship but but because it's because we christians we christian creatives have not been good stewards with the talents and the storytelling that we have if we had told the stories the right way like left behind very much did like veggie tales very much did like skillet very much does if we had been telling stories and, and using our talents in a way that is effective and good as opposed to trying to cheat our way through the end or, or mm-hmm. take shortcuts then I think we would be more respected in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I look at like so many things and authors, like let's look at the 20th century. You have the two of the, probably the biggest authors, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who are also yeah. friends, of course, and they're well-known um, but later on, they would be considered either a hardcore Christian or a hardcore Catholic, however you want right. to look at that. And yet, right. they're the biggest influencers of fantasy and philosophy of the 20th century. So, yeah. like, what do you think made that difference? But I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole like collegiate discussion right there that we could go on, but like. The big, they were the biggest authors of the past probably 70 years. And yet they're the, probably one of the biggest Christians uh, in the public eye. Like what made that difference? In my opinion, the, the time frame in which they lived mm-hmm. helped. It did a lot to help them. If C.S. Lewis and Tolkien showed up now, I don't think they would be nearly as respected despite how brilliant they both were and and i'm 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 a fan of both i'm not a, a ginormous fan of both but i i have incredible respect for what they did and what they what they gave us in terms of both creativity and and just the the philosophy and the, the great thinking that they put into all of their work with all that said they benefited from the time in which they were published the time mm-hmm. in which they published 70 years ago Again, we, we just had the conversation about the, the different ideologies that um, that are at play nowadays in our society as compared to even just 20 years ago when Left Behind was coming out or 
Veggie Tales or Skillet or some of these other big Christian blockbusters. Back then, the ideologies that are prevalent these days were not even really they were they weren't even on the periphery they weren't even on the fringest of fringes they were they were mm-hmm. considered to be either bad or deviant or whatever word that you want to ascribe to them mm-hmm. they, they they were just so far out of the public mainstream that they didn't even rank and so in the absence of some of those the more um the more the, the stronger ideologies that are present today we have they had the opportunity to be a little bit more vocal about their Christianity without the fear of mass media repercussions or social media repercussions or whatever. Mm-hmm. And also that the society on the whole identified more directly as being Christian in, in more in the traditional sense, not in the American capitalistic sense. So it, I think it's really a historical benefit and a societal benefit that they had in terms of being able to write what they wrote, publish what they wrote, and develop a following and and a legacy that continues to this day. That's my mm-hmm. opinion on it. Yeah, and when you read Tolkien and Lewis, uh, Tolkien, Tolkien, sorry, despised allegory. He he was more his writing was more philosophically embedded into the actual storytelling and the motives and the dialogue of the characters it's almost like philosophical fiction like if you look at the books compared to the films and then you look at c.s lewis who really liked allegory he liked to use symbols you know like allegory is a, a story telling another story and so his was a little more um you could say on the head, and it resonated so much with children with the Narnia series, which in fact is why he wrote Narnia, just so his kids could understand the Bible better. And so you got these two different ways of life that are trying to tell the same story of the Bible and Christianity as a whole. We got Tolkien, who went through World War One. And you see that a lot with Lord of the Rings is that reflection that the world was experiencing, especially Europe, um, as a parallel to Middle Earth, that reflection of what they went through. And uh, like Sam and Frodo being two soldiers making their way across the land. And then you got Lewis, on the other hand, who wanted to be more um, actual paralleling the bible itself rather than real world events um so i just always loved how they had such polar opposites in approach to that and i think just the the timing of the world and especially with lewis how he was more post-world war ii things and you can just i think this whole theme i think it ties into with how like everything reflects the times. Yes. You know, and you see that as well with like the biblical epic films of the 50s. And then you see um, exploitation films of the 70s. 
how just the culture changed from that post-World War II standardization and way of life. And then it flipped with the revolution, the cultural revolution. And you see all that up to today and how just um, the voices are changing. Different voices are being heard. I think that's what I love so much about just storytelling and um, all of that. And one of my favorite directors is Martin Scorsese, who, of course, mm-hmm. did Goodfellas, Casino, The Wolf of Wall Street, Cape Fear, Raging Bull, a very eclectic style of writing. And I think yeah. what I like about him, not just he's great, but I relate to him on a faith level. He was actually going to be a priest um, before he got into filmmaking. And um, what's interesting is that faith is very important to him in a certain way, his Catholic upbringing. So you have like these authors and storytellers that have religious roots, um, whether it's Christianity or whatever. And you see that in their films. Like you see a lot of it, obviously, much more so. He always wanted to do um, the controversial film, The Last Temptation of Christ. And then years later, he made a movie called Silence, which is about um, Christian missionaries that go into Japan in the 16th century. And um, his other movies have Christian themes as well. But the general Christian would not notice that or think about that because like, um, a lot of his movies are about gangster life in New York or... Um, excessive profanity or sexual content. And yet he claims that Christianity, specifically his Catholic upbringing, is such a big influence on his storytelling. And I guess, I don't know if I really have a question, but more so your thoughts on um, that mindset, I guess. I I like the examples that you brought up and with with Scorsese he's uh he's an interesting case study for sure because you're exactly right looking at his stuff watching his movies you wouldn't your first thought wouldn't immediately be oh this guy's definitely a christian uh quite the opposite probably for for most viewers and and mm-hmm. uh mo- most of his audience with that said i i totally relate to that because that's kind of the stance that i take um obviously there's lines in my my writing that i don't cross and won't cross in terms of what i show or what i what i want to even include in the first place but that doesn't mean that that i won't go places that other christians might be hesitant to go whether as readers or writers there's definitely as you as you continue reading the ghost mind you'll you'll get a sense of what i'm talking about with this but there are definitely some dark places in the world and mm-hmm. if we don't go there who will it's yeah. going to be people in the general market who don't necessarily have a faith background and their perspective mm-hmm. on the dark places of the world is going to be very different than our perspective our our christian mm-hmm. perspective and to take it even a step further, my perspective as an individual, one person 
who is a Christian, who has my life experiences, that perspective is still going to be different from anyone, any other Christian too. I'm going to look at how faith applies to my life and or, or to my stories or to my work and on any level differently than my readers will. And no matter what I do, even if I'm being preachy with it, which I certainly hope I'm not, uh, even mm-hmm. if I'm being preachy with it, it's never going to come across 100% the same way to a reader that I mean it to come across mm-hmm. because they've got their own set of, they've got their own worldview. They've got their own set of experiences. They've got their own beliefs. And so they're going to look at it through that specific lens too. And so mm-hmm. now we're getting into the conversation of how do you interpret art? And, yep, exactly. <laughs> how do you interpret Christian art like is is where do you draw lines how do you draw lines and my stance with most of that is give people freedom and let the Holy Spirit sort out the rest from a Christian perspective Mm -hmm. honestly I think that's the most biblical thing you Mm -hmm. can do too because if, if you don't trust the Holy Spirit to handle someone else's salvation which is different than trusting God to do your marketing for you Totally different thing. <laughs> what you have, and and you impact a certain person a certain way. What you're doing through that obedience is you're introducing them to to thoughts and ideas that will eventually that can eventually be used by the Holy Spirit to bring them closer to Christ. Because mm-hmm. I don't get to talk to every reader who I interact with. Or, yeah. or who reads my book, I should say. So yeah. I can't directly convey my faith to them unless they contact me and have questions. And and even then, if they're asking questions that aren't faith-related, the first mm-hmm. thing I'm not going to do is say, oh, by the way, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. You should be a Christian. That's, mm-hmm. that's not what they're looking for. And so I want to, I don't want to throw that in people's faces because that, again in our society doesn't work these days i don't know that Mm -hmm. it ever truly worked in the first place but it definitely doesn't work now so it's a huge conversation and it's it's a great topic that you brought up i i just err on the side of freedom for that i think that as long as you can sleep at night as long as you can reconcile the things that you've written with your faith and And you can you are willing to stand in account before God at the end of time and space and say, this is why I did this and own up to it, then I think write whatever you mm-hmm. feel inclined to write and right. let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. And I believe that too. I've struggled with that for years. I mean, my yeah. next movie that I'm writing or it's written, but I shoot it at the end of February. It's actually a horror film. And so like um, I'm not going to give too much away, but the theme of it is suffering, guilt that follows you um, throughout your life and catches up to you and tries to condemn you and versus forgiveness. Like uh, just just uh, the damage control and uh, the guilt and shame deep down that never leaves you and tries to haunt you. Um, and uh just all things like that. It can be depression. It can take many different forms. 
we're talking about these deeper topics. So I guess like, why is there such a stigma of like Christians wanting to use with Scorsese, for example, he's a Catholic, of course, and wanting to use like using profanity or sexual content or all these mature themes and content and uh, to tell a quote unquote Christian story. It's because we've been taught that those things are bad in church by people who God has given authority over us and whose authority we typically tend to respect because of their positions in our church. So your Sunday school teachers say, don't swear. Your pastor says, don't do this. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. Your your youth group leader says, don't do this. Don't do this. And it's I there is absolutely a place for them to say those things. Uh, but then when you get out into the real world, Having gone to a Christian university, uh, I I can understand the concept of living in a bubble. Uh, I grew up going to church every weekend. I went to a Christian university. Mm-hmm. And the bubble effect is a real thing. And you probably have experienced some of this as well, Jordan. I have, but yes. You're in this Christian bubble where everyone it's all sunshine and rainbows and everybody's singing worship songs all day and they've got k-love or whatever christian radio station playing non-stop in in the background to oh god <laughs> elevator music for, for walking <laughs> class or whatever then you get out into the real world and people are cussing like sailors uh there's horns honking there's mayhem there's crime there's all these awful things happening the very things that in a lot of cases our pastors and our leaders at churches and our parents even have warned us do not partake in those things Drinking, smoking, drugs, sex, rock and roll, all, all of these horrible, horrible things, whatever. And mm-hmm, everybody's got mm-hmm. this of, of things that are anathema to scripture. But when you get into the real world, real people, real characters in our books do these things. So since since real people do these things, our characters, if we want to tell a true and honest story, which I believe we need mm-hmm. to do because Mm-hmm. the bible tells us to tell the truth if we are dedicated to telling the truth then we have to tell the whole truth not mm-hmm. just part of it and part of that truth is the fallen nature of man that's biblical first book of the bible adam and eve fell from grace they committed sin and as a result sin entered the world and death through sin it's all scriptural if we don't tell that side of the story on some level, at least, we cannot present a full picture to our audience mm-hmm. of the biblical account of Christianity, of Jesus, mm-hmm. of God's provision of a savior to counteract and effectively wipe out the sin that has befallen mankind. And so that's pretty philosophical and, and pretty, pretty religious and theological in nature. But that's mm-hmm. all that to say it goes back to the freedom for me like if you if you want to tell a true and honest story that people will respond to then do that don't sugarcoat it don't don't try and obfuscate things or cover things up show the ugly for what it is and then show Mm -hmm. the good for what it is too as the as the contrast to that yeah and when i was in college and like everything was so like a certain way and like it's almost like the kids, the kids, the other classmates I had, 
it's yeah. like it's almost like they were quote unquote sheltered and didn't know of like it's like certain normal things that you and I would say or do or see that was so foreign to some of these um other students I went with and that's just one location I see this yeah. so much in like the Christian bubble as you're talking about and um it's like whether it's mental illness or just real world problems or just daily struggles, whatever it is, profanity, struggles with sex, struggles with lust, telling these stories that we know are true and that we know we all struggle with, but um, I get a little hesitant about because everything needs to be that Sunday morning, I'm doing all right vibe. But I guess the final question to really sum up this whole conversation and just stuff I think about all the time as a pastor, as a storyteller, um, whether it's through film with myself or books with you or when we both speak. And I just, we think about all of our friends and families and just all the people we talk with, Republican, um, Democrat, liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter. It's like, why are Christians or people in general, why are we afraid of authenticity? I think because it authenticity is tied to vulnerability. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're familiar with Renee Brown, she's big on being vulnerable. And I, I can't pair it back to you all every, uh, every point that she makes about it, but her stuff is great. Go check her out. But if you're going to be really authentic with someone, that means that you are opening yourself up to attack. And that has certainly happened. Mm -hmm. on, if, if we're going to say that there's two sides of the aisle, I think there's more than two, but that has happened on both sides of the aisle, politically and socially over the years. Uh, the left has felt personally attacked by the right for years, for years and years, and, and even outright oppressed. Um, and I, I won't get into too many specifics, but the right has absolutely is absolutely guilty of it, and and the left has definitely oppressed the right over the years too. Like there's no one is innocent, right? right. No one is innocent. Exactly. And so being authentic, if if you're trying to be authentic with someone, you're opening yourself up to potential harm because you're sharing the deepest hidden parts of yourself that mm. are fundamental to who you are. And if it's at your core and someone strikes you in your core, it hurts everywhere. Mm -hmm. As opposed to you and I are Packer fans, right? If, oh, yeah. if the Packers lose, yeah, it sucks, but it doesn't, it's not like it's super close to my core. And if, mm -hmm. if some Bears fan, well, the Bears never beat us. So if some Vikings fan who we just destroyed, <laughs> by the way, oh, some Vikings goodness. fan is you know, picking <laughs> yeah. us because the Packers yeah. lost, it's like, well, Okay, I don't have any control over that. Neither does Jordan, and neither do you, for that matter, Vikings fan. You you didn't help the team win. You're just picking on me because ah, your team did better. That's not a core belief. It has nothing to do with our core beliefs. The Packers, no matter how much you love a sports team, if you put your identity in them, well, that's a go see a therapist. But for most people, that's not how they wrap up their identity. If I present <laughs> who I am as a person, my faith in Christ my belief in how people should be or how life should be. If you present something that is fundamental to who you are, if you, you rip open your chest and say, here's my heart, mm -hmm. 
tread carefully, you be gentle with it. And they take it and they rip it out and throw it on the ground and step on it. It's going to hurt a lot more than, you know, someone picking on you because your sports team lost. So with authenticity comes vulnerability. And it's that vulnerability that creative people don't want to risk. And But those of us who are making good artwork, regardless mm-hmm. of what the medium is, we are being authentic because we are being vulnerable. We're putting mm-hmm. out the deepest and sometimes the darkest parts of who we are, especially when you're working on horror stuff, right, Jordan? You're putting mm-hmm. out these dark parts and people who know you're a Christian will be like, I've, we've had this question um, from loved ones. People have asked me, how can you write such dark and horrible things? Aren't you a Christian? Right, exactly. And I've had to explain, well, yeah, but but also aren't there dark and horrible things in the world? Am I not telling the truth? So it's it's an ongoing conversation. I don't know that it's an an intellectual battle that Christians who are on who think like you and I anyway. I don't think it's an intellectual battle that we'll ever be able to win. But it also speaks to who we're targeting for our target audience. Like, are you aiming to put your stuff out in front of Christians, or are you aiming to put your stuff out in front of the general market? For me, mm-hmm. I've chosen the general market by and large. That is the audience that I'm seeking. Because my evangelism, my personal evangelism is just that. It's personal. My books are not really supposed to be a tool for evangelism. It's how I make money. It's my career. And yes, there are Christian themes in what I say, but for the most part, it's it's a fun artistic expression that I can share with people so that they'll enjoy it. Awesome. Yeah, that's how I felt. And it's hard. It really is hard, I think, to express that because we saw the residual cultural effects um, from the 20th century that um, you can't do this, you can't do that. Christians don't swear. It's a lot of that legalism is still um, embedded into the leftovers. You can say of culture, yeah. and it is hard. Just a quick side note: I had a uh, an acquaintance that went to the Packer game yesterday. Um, and he was saying how this one Vikings fan was like, well, at least we got the NFC North. As if that means anything. (laughs) It's just hilarious the way he talked about it. Anyway, I digress. We've we've won several (laughs) NFC North championships, and uh, that that hasn't helped us a whole lot, has it? No. (laughs) But but yeah, uh, thank you, though, for... uh, helping me understand that talking to me about that. Yeah. Uh, that is a struggle. It's like when there's like, how can like faith and art complement each other and just being honest without people think you're declining your faith or something like that. Because like, I know, I think that's the thing is like, I think the best gospel is one of just authenticity and vulnerability. Like, if you have a story to tell, obviously don't do it for the sake of doing it, but do it like, how is your story going to be the most impactful to the viewer or the reader? You know, it takes certain things to show the gospel in a subconscious way, whatever, go for it, you know? And, um... 
him to too preachy, it's going to be a big turnoff. Like, they want to hear a story. They don't want to be, right. feel like they're in church, you know? Right. And uh, for me, that's what, that's what I struggle with that, and we all do. Uh, but yeah, yeah, in my opinion, I kind of agree with, I totally agree with you. Mm-mm, excuse me. I should say, like, let your voice be heard. Express your art and allow your faith to share that art. You know, like, let your art interpret the faith, you could say. But yeah, um, I guess closing remarks. Uh, did you have any final advice for those who are authors that want to share their faith in a general sense? Yeah, uh, in terms of being an author, focus on being a really, really good author. Like, write great stories, study mm-hmm. the craft of writing, hire a good editor, definitely hover, hire a, co- a good cover designer. Because uh, if your book cover sucks, no one's going to buy your book. That's just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do the work, you will reap the rewards. That is a biblical principle, and it is absolutely true in publishing. Um, outside of that, just don't give up. Keep going. If this is truly your passion, if it's a talent that God has given you, chase it. Keep going. Don't stop. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for being on the Handy Slap podcast. Today, for those who are listening, if you want to um, look more up about Ben Wolf, go to www.benwolf.com. You can find all of his books. He writes from fantasy to sci-fi horror to nonfiction. He's also a public speaker that can speak for writing or youth groups or whatever. Uh, if you want to do that, he's available. Um, he's a great guy. I've known him for years. Thank you so much, Ben, for sharing today, and you have a great day. And you too, Jordan. Thanks for having me. All right, man. You take care. All right, you too. Bye.